and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about how to have better conversations with people who believe, belong, and behave differently from ourselves. It's a chance for me to talk to different people involved in some way in our public conversations, whether that's politics, the media, the arts, or academia, and reflect with them on the things they hold sacred. This week, you'll hear a conversation I had with John Lloyd. John is probably the best-known and most respected comedy producer of his generation. Brains behind everything from Blackadder to Not the Nine O'Clock News, Spitting Image and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. For the last 15 years, he's produced QI, and he currently co-presents the Museum of Curiosity with previous podcast guest Sally Phillips. I spoke to him about why he thinks comedy has a moral purpose, his sacred value of rightness, and why he thinks his pick-and-mix approach to spirituality and philosophy is the way forward. The day we recorded, there was a lot more traffic outside our office than usual, but I hope that despite some background noise, you really enjoy listening. John, I'm going to kick off with uh, the big question, the organising theme of the podcast, which helps us, I think, to self-reflect on the things that are close to us, that motivate us, but also I hope to reflect on what other people hold sacred as a way of better understanding each other. And when I say sacred, I don't necessarily mean anything religious or even anything spiritual. And I want to ask you to bracket out the kind of key human relationships in your life and ask, is there a principle or a value or an idea or place even that for you is sacred and that if someone tried to take it away from you, you'd react very strongly and possibly quite irrationally? Okay, so... Knowing this question was coming up, you can't help it when you run QI, you have to research it. So the first thing I discovered, so I thought, I don't know what the word sacred means. I mean, I know in a general way, in a religious context, but I need the etymology. So I looked it up and bizarrely, the word sacred is from the Latin sacca and it means both sacred and accursed. And that's part of the thing that I think is that everything in the world is a paradox, So my reading in physics, for example, Niels Bohr used to say, at last, gentlemen, we've encountered a paradox. Now we have some hope of making progress. So I generally think that if something's paradoxical, you're on the right course. Um, So sacredness is at the core of what whatever anything means because it's a paradox. That's, but I've never thought this before. This is completely new thinking for me. In general, though, in terms of things that I try to do or things that I respect or um, try to be rightness is what I'm going to plump for. That's what I believe in, what I stand for, what I try to do is rightness. And that is in two directions. One is in terms of the quality of work and you know whether you're cooking a meal or whether you're making a programme. There's trying to get it right, um, trying to get a joke right. And then the other way is in terms of behaviour, that I believe that everybody internally knows what is right. And I'm trying to write, as my friends laugh at me for it, I've been trying to write a novel for 25 years, well, four novels. Um, I'm very inspired by Neil Griffith's book. And this deals with some of the big questions. And uh, there's a place in the novel, which is the halls of justice of a certain uh, country, where above the halls of justice, the portal of the main door is written the sole commandment of this religion, which is do what you know to be right is the whole of the law. That's really interesting. As you were talking, I was thinking that there's 
those concepts are often pulled apart in in conversation as excellence in the kind of working world. You know, we aim for excellence and perhaps righteousness in a kind of religious sense in terms of doing the right thing. And I really like the term rightness as a way of, of bridging those and seeing it as a, a posture towards all of life. There's also a, a book that I will send you by a guy called Krish Kandaya, who's a wonderful theologian. And the book is called Paradoxology, and it's about paradox in theology. And I think you might enjoy it. Okay, that sounds great. I don't know if you know this, but Arabic, uh, well, Semitic languages, Arabic and uh, Hebrew, for example, have a thing called triliteral roots. Do you know about those? I don't. Okay, so um, it's three consonants because, you know, the vowels, there aren't any vowels in Hebrew. You have to guess them, basically. And Arabic's yeah. kind of similar. So in Arabic, for example, um, KTB, the th- that's three letters, the triliteral root. It means anything to do with a book. So Al-Kitab is the book. And that is also literally the book, the Bible. Um, in in Islam, they call Christians, Jews and uh, Muslims the people of the book, yeah. Al-Kitab. So anything that's got a KTB in the word in Arabic it means something to do with books. So reading, writing, literacy, libraries and so on. They're all associated. So in those languages, it's very easy to see that there's a connection between words which are similar. And in, in English, we have lots of simple words like good and right, for example, uh, which we don't generally make the connection, uh, and why should we, that, that something is a good meal or a good person. We use the same word. Yeah. And I think there's actually a literal connection between the two. And I'll describe it like this that Picasso, for example, famously a rather egotistical and difficult man and perhaps rather arrogant and, you know, very successful and rich and all that kind of thing, lots of mistresses, not not terribly well behaved from a Christian perspective perhaps. But I always theorise that it's not possible to do good work with your ego present. So I used to think that if Picasso went to work, no matter how much of a pig he'd been behaving in his private life, when he went to work, he behaved well because you need to be open and patient and courageous and all those kind of things to be a good artist. But was that just a theory? And then I found a thing a couple of years ago that Picasso quoted as saying that when I enter my studio, I leave my ego outside like a Muslim leaves their slippers outside the mosque. And I thought that was a great line. Uh, But so that, that thing that I don't think it's possible to do good, certainly artistic work, if you're a bad person at the point of doing the labour something about self-transcendence there and virtues that I want to come back to. And we'll also come back to, uh, it will be evident to the listener already, even if they don't know QI, which seems impossible, that you have this voracious thirst for knowledge. And we'll come, I'll ask you about where that came from, but I want to zoom back a little bit to try and allow us to hear, get a sense of you personally as the man that you are and what's formed you. So perhaps you could tell me a little bit about your childhood and specifically, were there any religious or philosophical or political ideas that were in the air that you think might have formed you or shaped you? And I think was that my dad was in the Navy. So there are three of us, three siblings. And so we travelled a lot from the ages of about until I was about 10, basically, moving more or less every year, going abroad a lot. And so it wasn't possible, usually, to be in a school for more than a few months before you were off again and then looking for a new school or you're on a troop ship or something like that. And so I do remember my mum, you know, it was a, a sort of an early form of home ed, I suppose, but not conscious, is that on long car journeys she used to do quizzes. Uh, you know, name three trees beginning with E, that kind of stuff. And it was so education as a game. And it was a bit of a shock to be sent away to boarding school at nine and a half and have to sit in rows and remember lists and all that. I quite like prep school, actually, but it wasn't 
a game anymore. It was like, this is a task, you know, this is the list, you must remember this, otherwise you don't get a good score and then you get punished or whatever, or criticised. So that's one thing. And then my mum told me years later that as a young woman, she could have gone to university, but her father was quite a Victorian and didn't approve of girls going to university. Her mum did, oddly enough, one of the first women to go to university in the early 20th century and she went to Bedford College and, I don't know, before the First World War, I think. Uh, but she wasn't allowed to go to university. She became a secretary in London and uh, alone as a young woman in London just before the war, she decided that she didn't know what she really believed. I don't think her parents were particularly religious. And so she went round and tried out a mosque, a synagogue, you know, a, a, a Catholic church and so on to see what, what, she, what she fancied. She's still with us. She's 98. Amazing person. And I think uh, I've never thought of myself as being particularly curious, but I think those two things... That's my mother's characteristic. My dad was also, he was a naval officer, but he would have loved to have been a historian. That was really what he wanted to do and didn't get that chance. So he read a lot. So I think that's that's that sort of hardwired stuff, curiosity and the idea that learning things can be fun. It doesn't have to be boring. So what led you uh, post, prep school, post university into comedy? What was the uh, the pull of that for you? Well, it's interesting that having thought for a few minutes about what I hold sacred and saying rightness and thinking, you know, I hope that's not trying to be clever or anything. It is what I think. But now I see it running as a theme through my life. So I went to Cambridge with the, I was meant to go to Oxford. I was told by my school to go to Oxford to read history. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go to Cambridge for no other reason. I quite like the name Trinity College Cambridge. And I decided to read law because I wanted to do a job that made a difference, that did something right. And I wanted to be my ambition to, was to be a defence advocate, a criminal defence advocate, to be, you know, Perry Mason, if you like, and, and defend the weak against the strong and, uh, you know, fight good causes and all that. You go to Cambridge, if you go to Cambridge as a lawyer thinking those things, they laugh at you until you drop the whole idea. And I remember one of my tutors saying, John, if you think justice and the law have anything to do with each other, you're very much mistaken. Law is a system of rules like maths and you have to learn them and apply them. And that did depress me. And I thought, well, I can't do this because and then I thought I can't I couldn't be a barrister because what if I had got a conviction of somebody I knew to be innocent or thought was innocent and, and much worse vice for failed to secure an acquittal for somebody I knew to be to, to be innocent and so I realized very early on that wasn't going to be my calling and so I did everything else and I had a go at straight acting and student journalism student politics and and I found that comedy was the thing that I liked it was the thing that wasn't work to me it was I worked very hard at Cambridge but not as a lawyer I was up often till two three in the morning writing scripts and you know editing and all that kind of stuff so I'm very lucky that my my hobby became my job so we've had a comedian on the show previously called Pippa Evans who's a, a stand-up and does showstoppers does improvised musicals. She's a dear friend and she said when I asked what would she ask, she wanted to know about the moral purpose of comedy if there is one and also uh, the line between making people uncomfortable and satire and where does that tip into cruelty and I imagine looking back over your career with the very topical things you've made, you've had to ask yourself that question at points. Yes, I wrote, I don't do um, book reviews anymore but I have done a few in the past and I once reviewed a book by Howard Jacobson about comedy where his view is that it's all about cruelty and I got very cruel about this because I don't believe that. Have you ever seen, I know you've got small children, you see two small children helpless with laughter, there's no cruelty in it at all. It's sheer joy. In a Christian context, I happen to believe that everything is an echo of the great beyond and that, that you know, the, the thing that is, is joyous and, and joy in 
private life and in particularly in laughter is a is a minute echo of that that larger eternal joy if you like um just i think certainly i do believe in comedy as a moral purpose uh i think that it has i was a little bit ashamed when i started working comedy because my friends had gone into law or a few doctors number of bankers are slightly different but i didn't feel feel i had a proper job and it took me years to come to terms the fact that making people laugh for a living is a good thing to do it is of its self worth doing. My favourite word in English is autotelic, which means worth doing for its own sake and making people laugh for the sake of increasing the sum of happiness and jollity in the world is a good thing, I yeah. think. And 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 it's a very rewarding to, to be lucky enough to do that. Uh, so, so and, and when I did Spitting Image, for example, where you're right on the edge of is this fair, is this cruel, and so on. A great deal of emotional energy and indeed furious anger went into not just discussing how we should deal with the politics of the situation, but how we should deal with the people that we were lampooning. And I would often say, I, it's, it's not, we shouldn't make a puppet of those people, they don't deserve it. We're, just because we can do the funny voice and we can get their face right, what have they done to deserve to be, you know, made to be laughed at by people in general? I think that decayed after I left to some extent and people just, they do a puppet of anybody. And I think it lost its moral compass to some extent because the thing is when it started, it had a fierce sense of we were trying to make a difference. We wanted to say these things are wrong and they should be they should be changed. And later on it just becomes a lot of people doing name calling and doing sort of funny puppets. It's a different thing. I'm fascinated that you use the word deserve. What for you was the the kind of thing or the kind of line that meant that you felt able to tip into that more righteous anger, that sense of holding people to account? Well, I think um, in the present day, we can see that that seems to have gone. I remember doing a film, even though it's only a few years ago, three or four years ago, for the newspaper marketing organisation when I went to meet all the editors of the big papers. It was in the middle of Leveson and this guy asked me if I would do a film putting the better side of the press, and I thought, there isn't one. I mean, they're all phone hackers, and they're all, you know, biased, and uh, and newspapers don't sell anyway. And then I went and meet the people. I went to meet the editors, and I was really struck by their sense of integrity. Many of them had become a journalist because they'd seen, um, what was that famous film about the two journalists, uh, Bob Woodward and, um, you know, the one about um, Watergate? All the President's Men. Uh, many of them had seen All the President's Men and thought, that's what I want to do. Yeah. I want to call to account people who've done wrong things. And actually, the best kind of journalist is like the best kind of policeman, you know, um, or indeed the best kind of lawyer, which is they're trying to ameliorate the world by making sure that bad guys don't get away with it. And there was a lot of that in Spitting Image. Yeah. Uh, of course, we made mistakes. I, I always felt we were a bit unkind to Prince Charles, who I rather admire, actually. I think we made f fun of him rather, particularly that he'd talk to daffodils all the time. Uh, that was his joke. Which is not such a terrible trait, is it, really? No, it, is. no, it isn't. But it isn't at all. And, and with the latest research on plant consciousness, he made well have been 30 odd years ahead of the game because yeah. we now know as it were scientifically that trees communicate with each other that plants have memories that mimosa plants particularly learn from experience did you know that no. you can teach a mimosa plant things it's fascinating so um yeah so so i didn't like it when we did a mishit but on the whole i think 
you want to run the country, you run it well, or else somebody's going to say, hey, you're not doing this properly. Uh, I, it, I hope it doesn't sound pious. It was never, we tried not to wear our politics on our sleeve in Spitting Images. Basically, you make people laugh and then they think afterwards. You don't you don't polemicise, you don't lecture, you just make people laugh and then they go and tell their friends, think, oh yeah, I see, I see what they're saying. So I'd like to delve into um, what seems to have been quite a significant moment, uh, and you've spoken about it in public before, uh, where you had um, a sense of reflection on your life and a search for meaning. You were, I believe, in your 40s and you had two young children and a happy marriage and a great career, but something didn't feel quite right. Could you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, um, I since learned that I'm a, a, a cliche. Um, one thing that makes me a, a reasonable telly producer, I'm a very ordinary person. I, I like ordinary things. I like the things everyone else likes. I always like the number one pop song. I, I drive the kind of car that everybody else drives. I'm really boring. And uh, and I'm a cliche psychologically because um, I'm what's called a successful malcontent. Very common, you know, we often hear about the menopause sometimes in, in bad contexts and uh, and how women have uh, a crisis in the middle of their lives. You don't hear so much about the male midlife crisis, which is endemic, actually incredibly common, usually hidden because men are not very good at talking about things and it shows up as, you know, bad behaviour or buying a Ferrari or people who start drinking too much, that kind of um, and it's quite common for people who uh, I was, I can say this now because success isn't of that kind isn't something I particularly respect, but I was ridiculously successful until my early 30s. And I thought I took credit for it. I thought, well, I, you know, I'm not particularly a genius or anything, but I'm very, very hardworking. I work harder than most people I know, and it, I deserve to be successful. And then one day the rug got pulled and I stopped being successful in every possible direction. I had 10 years where nothing worked. It was the most peculiar experience. Um, and at the time, I was working as a commercials director and I was uh, initially enjoyed it, but then I found that having children and working in advertising, it was basically trying to impose control on two sets of people who were not interested in being controlled. And at the time, I thought, my wife used to shout at me, don't try and produce this family, we're not a programme. And I said, but no, no, but, you know, I'm I'm the guy who understands how to make this right, leave, leave it to me, I'll sort it out, this is what you need to do, you need to go to bed on time, you need to get up here, and you need, because it doesn't work with children, as you know, and it certainly doesn't work with advertising creatives or clients. And so uh, I, I had this... Um, I, I just ran into a wall, really. I just woke up one Christmas Eve and thought, I can't see the point of anything. And it was compounded by a terrible feeling of anxiety about my kids particularly. What if what if they should die? I'd never really thought about life and death and, and so forth. And um, so I, w- I went down a rabbit hole and I got very angry and resentful and depressed for the first three years of the worst. It's like Marvin the Paranoid Android, you know, the first 30, 30 million years of the worst. Yeah, and so I uh, set out to think about things. Principally, was there any point in remaining alive? I wasn't suicidal or anything. I just didn't see the point of anything very much. What was what was the point of being here other than to be successful? And when you were successful, it came to it came upon me that it didn't mean anything. I won dozens of awards for various reasons. They were all in my study, in the little study, you know, my desk. And, and I thought, is this my life? Thirty pieces of cardboard in glass frames. It's ridiculous. So I set out to ask, what's the point of anything? And also the the really big questions: What happens if anything when we die? You know, why why does God uh, allow volcanoes to happen? All those sort of kindergarten um, theological questions that you 
use, people generally start to ask at some point in their life. And so I read a great deal, starting with physics and then maths. Um, and from maths, I got into Pythagoras, so Greek philosophy, and then Stoicism. And and then I started reading the Bible again for interest's sake. And then I got into Hinduism and Zen. And, you know, I'm pretty well read in the philosophical realm and, and the difficult people, you know, um, Ori Bergson and Heidegger, they're very hard. And um, and Spinoza I'm very fond of. Um, sounds pretentious, but the, the, the QI way, which I was learning then because there was no QI, is read everything, even the footnotes. If you don't understand something, look it up. If you can't understand it, pass on until you find something interesting. And so my philosophy is compounded of the best nuggets from maybe a 100 philosophers over several thousand years and it works for me it's it's a sort of what is rather disparagingly by formerly seriously religious people or indeed atheists known as a pick and mix philosophy it's got a bit of everything in it and you alluded earlier to the something beyond the joy beyond us did you have a belief in in something beyond at the start of that process or did you come to it during that kind of journey of discovery I was confirmed by the Archbishop of Canterbury at age 14 in Canterbury Cathedral and as he put his hands on my head I thought, you know, this is not doing it for me. I love the architecture. Canterbury Cathedral is one of my, if there was any sacred place, that would be one of them because I grew up there at school and went there when I was low. I would always go and stand in the cathedral and came to know some of the people there well. The architecture, the music, the things that have been done well, that's all good. Um... But I couldn't believe in two things, really, the physics of Christianity, resurrection of the body, that kind of stuff. Nobody have explained that to me adequately. Because I'm not, even though I've been to some very strange and mystical places, I'm a rationalist. I believe everything can be explained, literally everything. But uh, there, are, there is no such thing as the supernatural. Everything is natural and real. Because if you ever studied quantum physics, there's nothing weirder than that. There's a lot weirder than, space, you know, UFOs and yeah. things like that. How an electron, if it is even a thing, how it behaves. So, and you only have to read uh, widely in a cross-religious sense. It's one of my objections to Dawkins, you know, as a hardline atheist, who I know personally and like personally, but I don't much like the uh, the militant atheism because he hasn't read very much outside, you know, basic orthodox kind of low-grade Christianity. I bet he hasn't read Augustine's City of God, for example, or the Confessions. Maybe, maybe he has. I, I know he likes sacred music. It's just that he doesn't have enough evidence to, to make the case. Uh, maybe I don't either, but I have read the Bhagavad Gita, you know, and I've read the Tao Te Ching, and uh, and I have thought a lot about Islamic theology and read bits of the Quran and all that kind of stuff. And the thing is, it doesn't take very much intelligence to say you can see clearly all these big faiths have got great ideas in them, without any doubt. They can't all be wrong, they can't all be right, they're that's the thing. And so as somebody who's never been a particular joiner, I have a sense there's something beyond. These are expressions of a bigger truth of which they've all got part of. There's a famous Sufi uh, um, metaphor or parable about the five, six blind men in the room with the elephant. You know that? Mm. So there's 
a dark room and there's a bunch of guys in there and there's an elephant and they've each got hold of part of the elephant and yeah. one guy says well basically this animal is like a tree trunk it's yeah. it, it's uh, and it's a bit sort of uh, wrinkly and the other one says no it's long and thin like a snake another one says no it's big and flappy like a big blanket with sort yeah. of you know like a leather blanket yeah. they're all correct but none of them can see the whole elephant and I think that that's absolutely at the core of my beliefs is that there's something there's kind of an uber faith or an uber philosophy where everything makes sense so uh, and actually I was at a christening on on Sunday and having started these things I think you know I, I love doing the singing and everything else but I find I can't I, I want to get up and say, do you see, we, the, the, you know, you're being too sectarian about this. You need to be more, and it was quite, it was quite ecumenical and quite evangelical, actually, rather, rather good fun, you know, very jolly. I think maybe a New Zealand vicar and lots of larking about and everyone joining in and children. Oh, I liked all that very much. And then you get to the, the liturgy, as it were, and you think, well, yeah, but this would be so much better explained. Yeah. If you started talking, if you brought Confucius in here, if you said that actually what Jesus is saying here is very similar to Tibetan Buddhism, and this is a core idea, be kind to people, you know, that's what people would, you'd, you'd have much more effect. It's one of the things, it's a bit like recently, and Dawkins is part of this great movement, popular science, you know, popularizing science, yeah. making it clear, making it amusing, making it easy to follow, which wasn't the case for a long time. And I feel that about, about formal religion is that you're so close. All you have to do is, why don't you explain it in simple terms yeah. that affects people's direct daily experience rather than saying, well, of course, and when St. when Philip went to Samaria, then we saw this thing. See, I'm not going to say it's like it should be more like the voice or something, but it's a long time ago, and surely we can update the metaphors, can't we? Can't we update the parables and the analogies to say, you know, and they, they make a good stab at it, these sorts of um, evangelical churches good preaching will do that but rooting it i think in in the text i have some history i have to confess now and put my cards on the table with that particular sufi parable i've written about it a little bit um in relation to a wreath lecture i saw and i have to start with saying i have an awful lot of sympathy for what you've said in the sense of uh, there being wisdom and knowledge and goodness across a wide range of religious and, and non-religious traditions. And it is, you know, the the thinking person and the person interested in, in serving the world better uh, should be panning for gold, you know, should be seeking and learning and listening across a really wide range of, of traditions. And, you know, certainly from Christian theology, a kind of do doctrine of creation uh, should mean that we should look for goodness and truth everywhere, you know, beyond the church, beyond people who call themselves Christians. God's God's action is thank God, not limited to us kind of messed up and flawed people who are consciously seeking to follow him. But the Sufi parable always troubles me slightly because of where it puts the person telling it. And the, you know, there's truth everywhere. Position, I think, is important to put amongst the other positions as a view from somewhere. And what it can sound like, um, although you described it very graciously, is I, I can see the whole elephant. You know, n none of you others can see the whole elephant. And therefore, I have access to that higher truth. And there's a similar thing about going up on going around the mountain that, you know, there's all these paths that lead to the top of the mountain, but it requires the person telling the story to be in a helicopter with the bird's eye view of the mountain. And I guess I have a sense of a kind of caution about that and a and a instinct towards the epistemic humility to say the there's truth in everything is as much a limited position as the there's only truth here or there's only truth here that we're all starting from our perspectives does that make sense yes it does but obviously like 
the parables that Jesus was continually telling in the in the New Testament, it's not about the elephant. The ele- it's a parable for something else. And, um, and and it's also not my helicopter view. It's not my elephant. I, I just think it, it had the ring of truth when I read it. Oh, it does. It have a, has a strong kind of common sense power to it. And I think there is, you know, there's, there's things to be taken away from it. We just need to be a little bit careful about where we're positioning ourselves in the story. It's very difficult for me, Elizabeth, this because there's so much we, we could really talk about this for a week without drawing breath, I know. And I'm the kind of person who, when Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door... I actually quote chapter and verse and say, but on the other hand, in Leviticus this, and they go, oh, thanks very much. I, th- I must hurry along now. Uh, so, uh, But for example, I, I, the nature of, well, one of the things about uh, the whole business of God is when people call to mind God, they immediately call to mind the sort of Michelangelo painting. And it's my view that uh, God, if if there is one, um, he might choose to have a beard if he feels like it, rather like Zeus want to be a swan for a weekend. But generally, anybody is smart enough. And I often use this argument. I find myself right in the middle between atheists and, you know, sort of formal believers. Because when people say, somebody said to me the other day, you know, if God exists, why doesn't he give a sign? I said, have you looked around? Have you ever looked at a tree or a sheep, you know, or a sparrow for five minutes. And does this feel like an accident to you? I'm not going to say I don't, I disbelieve in evolution because that wouldn't be so. But let's just posit, for example, that this is a designed universe by some sort of individual or corporation or matrix or computer system, that it's a designed thing. How clever would you have to be to do that? And what would your motivation be to have created it? Those are the questions that interest me. And then I think, does God, if he he or she or it or they exist, do they really care whether you wear a hat in church or not, whether you kneel, stand, sing, stay silent, you know, what, you know, this is a thing when you read the history of heresy, it's a disgrace in all religions, I don't say just Christianity, that any time somebody comes along with a clearer, more common sense, more open idea, they are pursued, exiled, burned at the stake, you know, hanged, whatever. This isn't good enough. John, one of the things that this podcast is interested in is our public debates, and they are, I think most people would feel, not in a great state. Uh, I'd love to hear your reflection, particularly on how we talk about not just religion, but these big ideas of how do we live a good life? How do we live together with our differences and whether you think they're in a good place or bad place and what might help? Well, I think what the world could use right now is a uh, at least a vowedly non-theistic religion that made sense and that was able to uh, fit quantum physics and evolution inside itself and made sense, in, you know, morally and um, scientifically all at once. That's what. Why non-theistic? Because of the whole question of definition. Um, sometimes when I'm asked to do things, I say I'm an agnostic, which is an agnostic is not my word, but it's a great word. And is an agnostic is somebody who refuses to discuss the question of whether God exists until the terms are defined. So you tell me what you think God is, and then we can start talking about it. Because I don't know any serious believer who believes that God sits literally on a throne and has huge forearms and does thunderbolts. I mean, that's a sort of Greek concept of God. So once you get into the idea that let's not use the word God because it's distracting and it's divisive, 
you either believe in God or you don't believe in God. Do you believe in physics, for example? Do you believe in gravity? Do you believe in these large, invisible, eternal forces that apply equally throughout the universe and are extremely powerful? I think we can all, most people can sign up to that idea. Um, it, then it's just a question of whether these these forces, is does gravity have a view, for example? Does gravity have any intentions? And we can at least say that it's probably the case that the laws of physics are morally neutral. They don't judge people. They don't, you know, deliberately hurt people. But nor do they deliberately save people. They just are. And in that sort of space, you can get people to think about, oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Well, I can certainly sign up to that. Um, and But once you start bringing God into the equation, it starts to make people angry and they go start saying, you know, you believe in elves, that kind of nonsense that people always say. It's funny how... Emotive and emotional, that question can get quite fast. It feels like there's something I, I, I'm I'm fascinated by the kind of psychology of talking about God, whether there's a kind of existential threat or a sense of a, a kind of tailment of autonomy. Or I think for a lot of people, actually, it's it's dis, it's disappointed hope that many people perhaps started believing in God and uh, an incident of personal suffering or something really dreadful in their life meant that that was closed down for them. But that's, there's a wound there. There's something painful because, of course, the idea of a good, loving God involved in our lives is a wonderful thing and they can't bring themselves to believe it. And therefore, it's not a, it's not a cold, rational question for, for almost anyone, is it? It's it, it, There's more going on than that. And that's a really helpful way that you've spoken about it. Well, there's a, you know, great cliches and that God helps those who help themselves so I think that's there's a lot of truth in that I think the the personal journey is to do right because doing right is the right thing to do and in you know Christian theology you don't get to heaven because you behave well you get there by God's grace as I understand it it's a big misunderstanding people have about Christianity that it's a sort of tick a list of yeah. tick off a list of it's good things a, yeah that the, it's a punishment or reward or whatever but but people can't help it and as somebody who was the kind of milksop so agnostic really who wouldn't I say well I don't really go to church anymore I don't believe in it but on a pr- plane I'd start crossing myself and saying please God help me I, I, I you know I want to survive you think well that's feeble you've got to be consistent about it and oddly since I read a lot of philosophy and theology and thought very hard about it I'm much more religious in with a small r but much less superstitious so I you can't help yourself it's part of an ego that when one of your children is unwell you pray to a a thing you don't believe in. I think there's an awful lot of people do that. I mean, my because I'm neutral theologically, I'm neither a believer nor an atheist. Uh, I just have my own set of views. People can talk to me quite without that sense of me setting up a, an Aunt Sally or, or having an argument. So so but I can't be pinned, pinned down. It was a, one of the best things I've ever seen on online was um, Anthony Kenny, the philosopher, moderating a discussion between Richard Dawkins and Rome Williams. Uh, I'm a massive fan of Rome Williams, both as a figure and personally, because I know him a little bit. About three years ago, I had one of the great letters of my life from Rowan Williams, who I had not met at that time, saying, would I like to come meet the Dalai Lama? And you think, do you know I'm watching television that evening? No, of course. And you go, well, what a great letter, you know. And it was a conference, about 200 people in Cambridge, called the Inspired Dialogue Foundation. So it was this conference in... uh, in Cambridge and they particularly wanted young people and I was keen to go because my son Harry had just broken his back in a skiing accident and I wanted to give him something A to do while he was recuperating and something that might inspire him, you know, because it's it's very difficult when you're young and that 
a terrible thing like that happens. So we went along together and it was a marvellous experience and Rowan Williams and the Dalai Lama get on very well together and they both come in the room and you have this tremendous sense of relaxation that these are people who are in their skin, who are kind, who are easy to follow and nice and and they come from completely different religious traditions and clearly that's the kind of person we should all aspire to be. You know, unjudgmental, intelligent, funny, uh, interested, uh, kind all those things and I couldn't give two hoots that they're wearing different clothes and that they must wrestle with you know extreme wings of their various religious groups who think well you should believe in this and you shouldn't believe in that and as I say I'm not going to be drawn on how the universe got here I don't think anybody really knows but if as I say if supposing it is created by some entity God if you like is that entity going to be interested in all the various uh, attempts to uh, worship that entity, if indeed that's what they want, which I don't think is wished for. I, I, think, I think if you're smart enough to create the world, you don't need the ants on it to go around worshipping you. That's what I think. I think that person is bigger than that, because one of my core things... It's particularly because having read all this theology and non-theistic philosophy and across the board, you think there's so much good stuff out there. It's better explained. Certain things are much better explained in Zen than they are in Christianity. And then, and also the whole, you know, the physics of things are better explained than other things. I would say that the cosmology of Hinduism is a lot more believable in terms of it's sort of cyclical and it happens over eons than the account of creation in Genesis, for example. And so the thing is, you think, well, and so I borrow this. I think, you know, there's great ideas in Islam and there's great ideas in, in Taoism and, and, and in Jainism, for heaven's sake, you know. The thing is, why waste the opportunity of the whole human experience and not to have a... I don't understand why this isn't taught in religious studies, for example. We say, well, this is what we our tradition in this country is uh, is is uh, Christianity, but these guys have got a very similar idea. Once you start saying we're right and everyone else is wrong, everything stems from that. You know, hatred and racism and war and terrorism and everything else. And I, I think that's what you need to. If you're going to do anything well, it needs to be across formal religious boundaries. I'm going to close with a final question, which is um, thinking particularly about our public conversations across belief and non-belief. What is one thing that those who don't um, hold religious belief could do better? And what could religious people improve on? Is there a particular thing that infuriates you about how religious people engage or anything you'd want to encourage them into? Science is the only answer and or religion is the only answer uh, 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 is ridiculous. There shouldn't be a divide. It's perfectly possible to be a physicist who goes to church uh, and, and reconcile the two ideas to yourself. But we're looking in the wrong direction if that's what we're going to do. It's a bit like Brexit. You know, that, this is not an argument we need to be having at this time. We need to be arguing about whether we want more poverty or less poverty or whether we we want, you know, more equality or less equality. It's a bit like when people say about gender differences, you know, it's core thing for me is trying to be a, a better person. That's the journey. In uh, in the Quran, there's a really interesting idea, which is there are, or certainly in the Hadith, there's the idea there are two kinds of jihad. You know, we, we know that jihad is the religious war, you know, the struggle against the forces of darkness that you've got to take up your sword or whatever. And... Uh, crush the infidel and that is known as the lesser jihad and the greater jihad is the conquest of the self which is the real battle is internal 
That's what I think. And I think the thing you could do better is instead of looking for blame outside, whose fault is this, whether it's your person you're married to or the people who live across the water or the people who live the other side of the world or the people who have a different coloured skin, you should look into yourself and think, how can I behave better? How can I control the ravening beasts within? John, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. Our producer is Hussein Kesvani, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd love to hear what you think. Please do get in touch via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or sacredpodcast at gmail.com. Tell us what you loved, what you hated, and who you think we should talk to next. We'd also be really grateful if you'd rate and review us wherever you get your podcast and spread the word to your friends. Thanks very much.